0: Verse 32 says, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Interesting. One is a round number. The other one mentions five additional ones. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Interesting that he mentions that he studied um, both zoology and botany, trees, as well as these different kinds of animals. He was a kind of a renaissance man that studied a lot of fields and mastered them all. Evidently one of the greatest geniuses in all history. But God also used them to write three inspired books of the Bible. So tonight we're going to just do a brief survey of those three books because in a way this is his greatest contribution, not building the temple. That was later torn down, but we still have these inspired books. Okay, the first one is the book of Proverbs. This verse says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, but the book of Proverbs only contains 513 of those, which tells us, Just like in this morning's message, um, John was told certain things to write down and those would be in the book of Revelation and other things not to write down. Um, Various prophets, they were not always infallible. When they wrote scripture and when they prophesied with the spirit upon, them, they were infallible, but they wrote other things that were not necessarily infallible, a couple of the Non-canonical letters that Paul wrote that he mentions, but they're not in the Bible. In fact, we don't even have them. But of those 3,513 were inspired, and they make up the book of Proverbs. And yet, he didn't write all the books, uh, the Proverbs in that book. Uh, Toward the end, some were written down by a man named Agur, A-G-U-R, and another one by Lemuel. And of course, they were all written in Hebrew. What is a Proverb. It's a short, pithy statement of wisdom and advice, sage advice. A proverb is not the same thing as a myth or a fable or just a mere opinion. It's not a poem, and it's not a law per se, although they give biblical wisdom as if to say, do this, believe this, and that would make it a law as such. And, you know, I've got a large book at home, and I've got about one-fourth the way through reading it, International Proverbs from around the world, and they vary, and some of them are in almost all nations and languages. Okay, class, let's see if we can name some of the Proverbs that we have heard in our life and have told other people. I'll get it started. Look before you leap. Okay, who's next? Here we go. Still waters run deep. Give me another one. No, no, no. A blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. <laughs> okay, blind squirrel. It varies. Any others? Yep. A penny saved. Okay, come on. you. you. That's right. Well, how about out of the frying pan into the fire? There we go. So these are a few of the popular proverbs. Um, about this fish and in three days. Yeah, fishing companies think in three days. Yes. Uh, by the way, there is a, a book written right after the New Testament called The Teaching, The Dedicate, and it has some proverbs, and one of them is, is almost like that. It says, If a, a traveling A prophet comes to you, show him hospitality for a day. On the second day, ask him when he's leaving. And if he stays the third day, he's a false prophet. (laughs) That's interesting. A little proverb. And so we could go on and on. I'm sure that after tonight's lesson, you will remember some. Don't phone me up and tell me them. Write them down. Now, often his proverbs are by way of contrast. The wise person does this, ah, but the foolish person does that. So he's given the good example and the bad example. Now, there's not much structure to the book of Proverbs. Here's a general outline. First seven verses, an introduction. And then chapters 1 to 9, it's Proverbs for the young. He's giving advice to a young man, young woman, often his son. In chapter 22 to 24, Proverbs by other wise men. Uh, Agur and Lemuel, and then uh, 25 to 29, Proverbs by Solomon that, his, that were collected by Hezekiah's son centuries later, evidently passed on by word of mouth, and then this man put them in, and then the last two chapters, Proverbs by Agur and Lemuel. So there's not much order, and this is one reason I, I haven't preached through Proverbs. I've thought about it, but I couldn't go verse by verse, could be just jumping. But what other preachers have done is that they've studied it and they've grouped the Proverbs into like 20 groups and there'd be 20 messages on that. And because there are um, groupings of these Proverbs. Some of these were lessons that Solomon had learned from observation. He'll even say, I saw this, I saw that. Other ones uh, by experience the hard way. We'll look at that with his backsliding and Ecclesiastes. And then other ones were simply direct inspiration from God. Talking about learning the hard way, here's, a pro, here's two Proverbs, not in the book of Proverbs. A wise man learns from the experience of others. A fool has to learn from his own experience, and an idiot never learns from anybody. But learn to learn from the mistakes of other people. Or you may have to learn from your own mistakes. And the second proverb is, Lessons learned the hard way are hard to forget. Isn't that true? We made a big mistake and said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to fall for that. Here's a proverb. Anybody remember that great sage, Paul Harvey? Your youngsters may not remember him, but he was on the radio and had these little sayings. And one of them was, When the man with money meets the man with experience, the man with experience gets the money and the man with the money gets experience. (laughs) In other words, he's going to lose his shirt because that guy knows more than he does. Remember, Solomon was the wisest man in history except for Jesus. Excelled everybody before and afterwards. Nobody could trap him with trick questions. I think we'll look at that next week. The general theme of the book is righteous wisdom is better than unrighteous folly. And what's the key verse? The fear of the Lord is what? Beginning of wisdom. It's twice in Proverbs and once in the Psalms. Sometimes it's the the beginning of knowledge. Here are some of the general lessons avoid immorality and immoral persons, don't be greedy. Uh, He warns about gluttony and drunkenness and losing your temper. On the other hand, be content, work hard, and always speak the truth. Now, some of the Proverbs indirectly come out in English Proverbs that they think are in the Bible, like spare the rod and spoil the child. That's loosely based upon one in the Bible. Does anybody remember what it is? That's right. But spare the rod, spoil the child, is, is close enough. And then there are some that are, people misquote it. Like you've heard it said, well, it says pride goeth before fall. Actually, it says pride goeth before destruction and haughtiness before fall. And then there are popular Proverbs. People think are in the book of Proverbs or at least somewhere in the Bible. What's the most popular one not in the Bible? Yeah. You know where that came from? Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin, almost said Little Richard's Almanac, but no. And then he got it from a French proverb, but that's not in the Bible. In fact, it contradicts the Bible. God helps those that cannot help themselves. He is the help of the helpless. And there are other sayings that people think are in the Bible. I did a Bible study once on this sort of subject, and I listed about a dozen proverbs and sayings. People were sure were in the Bible, but they weren't. We can also see how these proverbs are exemplified in Jesus, the wisest man who was righteous and godly. And we should also apply them to ourselves. Okay, there's a summary, very brief summary of Proverbs. Turn to the next one. Uh, what's the book that follows Proverbs? Ecclesiastes. Well said. So turn to Ecclesiastes, it's much shorter. And it is a collection of Proverbs as well. And it's an unusual book. A lot of preachers won't preach on this, but I dare it. Either I'm very wise and brave or very dumb, but I preached through it a few years ago. All scripture is inspired and profitable for preaching. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Does anybody have a translation other than the preacher? NIV says the words of the teacher. Yeah. Son of David. Hebrew word is kahileth, which means teacher, wise man, preacher, philosopher. And so it's talking about him. Now, the liberals deny that Solomon wrote this. Even some evangelicals have questions because he doesn't name himself Solomon. But verse 1 says... He is the son of David, son, grandson, descendant, king in Jerusalem. No other king, other than uh, David and Solomon, reigned over all Israel in Jerusalem, because after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. And so it was definitely Solomon. The Jews have always believed that, as well as most Christians. The name of the book is Ecclesiastes, not Ecclesiasticus. What's that? Anybody know? Book in the Apocrypha. And it's uh, it's wisdom, but it's not inspired. And the title is not Ecclesiastics either, which means like a clergyman or a preacher. But it's Solomon. Um, and the summary of the book is this. He's writing this at the end of his life after he had backslidden. We'll look at that in a subsequent lesson. And he's come back. And he's sharing these hard lessons especially with the young. He's in his old age, passing on some legacy, like I learned the hard way, you learn from my mistakes. And there's a lesson here. Uh, The older we get, we've accumulated a lot of experience that younger people don't have. We need to pass on the lessons of life to younger people. Uh, I may have told you that uh, about a year or two before my late father died, I one of those old-fashioned camcorders and I videotaped him speaking for 22 hours telling me the story of his life. And on one of them, I said, Dad, what are the lessons you want to pass on down to me, your grandchildren, and maybe 100 years from now? And he had some interesting little comments, uh, lessons to pass on down. Older Christians need to pass that down. Okay, class, is there a verse that says something about older men or women teaching younger men or women? Tell me. I see some heads shaking. Let's get one of the women to answer this. Okay, what does it say? Matt, you know the answer. I would that... And to love their husbands. And so, but a parallel would be men to teach younger men as well. We see that several times in the Bible and several times in Proverbs. So, elderly people should pass on wisdom of the years to the, maybe their children, grandchildren, and others. Look again at the verse 2 vanity of vanities. Now, vanity is a key word, it's found 37 times in this book. It means emptiness. Um, Uh, meaninglessness. And in the superlative, it means the worst kind, just like holy of holies, song of songs. Uh, So he is saying that life is, is meaningless. It's the vanity of vanity. Vanity doesn't mean selfishness. It means meaninglessness. And there's the main theme of his book. He had to learn the hard way that life without God is meaningless. No direction. What are you living for? Just to die and then you become... As one of the Puritans said, food for worms in the grave. But he's also saying if life without God is meaningless, life with God has meaning and purpose. You know him and you know what happens after you die. And along the way, Solomon shares lessons about uh, he was troubled by the rich people mistreating the poor or wicked people um, taking away from the righteous. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? An age-old question. And then the first couple of chapters, he talked about his, his backsliding, and he said, I went to, to, and I built these huge things, and I went after music and sex and all this stuff, and even in a form of philosophical insanity. And he found it was a dead end each time, and he had to back up and say, that's not the meaning of life. That's not the meaning of life. So what his lesson is, don't do what I did. Don't go down those dead ends. Here's the real path. Go to God. Now, if Solomon could backslide, anybody could backslide. Just think about it. The weaknesses of the great men and women in the Bible. David, man after God's own heart. What did he do? Bathsheba. What about Samson? Strongest man. fell for Delilah. What about Solomon? Anybody can backslide. Another interesting lesson is, he says, we should enjoy life in the proper way. More than once, he says, there's nothing better than to enjoy the labor of your hands. Nothing wrong with taking satisfaction in a job well done for the glory of God. Now, as I said, this is a mysterious book. It's somewhat gloomy, but it'll catch the attention of certain people that are not Christians. Me. I still remember 1971, that's 51 years ago. And I was studying at college. I was not a Christian yet. And I was taking a couple of classes in philosophy. And that's madness and folly. But somehow I remembered this book from my childhood. So I got an old Bible that I'd had and I'd read over this, And I said, that's what I feel like, meaninglessness. There's no hope in life. And uh, this, uh, this touched my heart. There's a verse there that really caught R.C. Sproul's attention before he became a Christian. anybody, anybody know what that is? If the tree falls there in the place it is. There it is. Yeah, tree falls in the forest. That's where it lays. He said, a dead tree. He says, I'm going to die and I'm going to fall and I'm going to end up in hell and not rise. That got his attention. Well, Ecclesiastes got my attention too. And uh, in the Lord's timing, that helped prepare me to believe. Okay, there's a brief summary of Ecclesiastes. By the way, for extra points, does anybody know what part of Ecclesiastes was put to music and became a number one hit? I see back over there. Yep, what was the song? Sing it for us. Who wrote it and who recorded it? The Birds, 1965, and it was written or put to music by Pete Seeger, who is an atheist American member of the Communist Party. But if you look at music trivia, it's the song with the oldest lyrics to ever make number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Turn, 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 taken from Ecclesiastes 3. Everything there is a season. By the way, Seeger and the Birds version. Rewrote the last phrase where it says, A time for war and a time for peace. They wanted to change that around. Okay, the third and last book is the book of the Song of Solomon. Sometimes called the Song of Songs, that's what it is in Hebrew. Again, it's the best song. Um, the Song of Solomon, the B- Song of Songs, which is Solomon, is what it says in Hebrew. In Catholic Bibles, it's usually called canticles. What's a canticle? It's a song, especially like a hymn. And sometimes it's called the canticle of canticles. By the way, look at that word canticle. Anybody know what a canter is? That's not just a slow running horse. It's a what? Yeah, the song leader in the Jewish synagogue. And boy, can they sing. Have you ever heard them? Ooh, wonderful. Wish I had a voice like that. So Cantor, similar to Canticles. One translation gives it the title, The Love Song of Solomon. Now Song of Solomon and uh, Ecclesiastes are two of the shortest books in the Old Testament. Those are two of the five megaloth. And uh, Kyle is trying desperately to try to write that down. How do you spell that? M-E-G-I-L-O-T-H. What's that? There were these five short books that are inspired by God, and they have a certain time to be read in the Jewish synagogues. They are Ruth, Esther, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Now, we read earlier in 1 Kings 4.32 that he composed 1,005 songs. This was the Song of Songs, the greatest of all the other ones, um, one other of his songs was inspired as well as this one. Which one was that? He wrote one of the psalms, and a psalm is a song. And so he uh, was led by God to write down two songs, and they noticeably different. But there's so, it's a song which meant it was to be sung. Did Solomon actually sing this? I'm picturing this. There he is in his court with all the people listening to his wisdom, and he said, let me sing a song, and he gets a harp, like David did. I'm sure David taught him to play the harp or the lyre or something like that. You can't, can't sing with a flute unless you do it back and forth. So picture Solomon. Why is Solomon singing this? Because it was meant to be sung. We don't have the music. Maybe he accompanied himself on a harp. Nobody, to my knowledge, has yet put the Song of Solomon To music to be sung. I think some of them wouldn't dare because some parts are, let's just say, rather spicy or intimate between a husband and wife, but it's all inspired. I wonder if someone ever would put it to music, how it would be sung, because it it's sung mostly as a duet with the husband and the wife. He sings, she sings back to him. And think of some of the great duets in musical history. I'm not thinking of like the Everly Brothers. I'm thinking of a husband and his wife. Remember Sonny and Cher. Or uh, they were husband and wife. Or what was uh, Nelson, Eddie, and what was the woman? Jeanette McDonald. They had those great duets back in the long before I was born. John, yes, and they were great. Uh, Something about a husband and wife singing. Did Solomon sing this publicly with his wife? Well, in the Song of Solomon, it's a man and his wife, and sometimes they sing together, other times they sing individually, and then they have this chorus um, in the background that'll sing maybe one or two lines. Now, what's very important is to know who is singing what at what time. Uh, I'm not sure, but the King James doesn't identify, but there are notes at the beginning of the New King James, the ESV, NIV, and others it will say, we will put like a little note saying the man or the husband. Now it's the woman. Now it's the chorus. Otherwise, you wonder who's singing what to whom, and some people get it backwards. They put these words in the, word, in the mouth of the wife when it's really the husband. The most uh, famous example anybody know? which says you are the lily of the valley. And there's a hymn like that saying Jesus is the lily of the valley and they said well it's it, that's the wife singing to the husband he's the lily of the valley. No, actually it's the husband saying the wife is the lily of the valley if I'm not mistaken. Just like Ecclesiastes very few preachers preach on it but I was brave enough to preach I forgot eight lessons on Song of Solomon is one of my favorites. The ancient rabbis said the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies of the Hebrew Bible. And they said it's a song of Jehovah to his bride, Israel. Those rabbis were not too far off. Now, if Ecclesiastes is saying, without God, life is vanity of vanities, the Song of Songs is being typical of Christ and his church, is saying, with God, you can sing the greatest love song of all, and it's not the vanity of vanities. Okay, the brief story is King Solomon, wealthy and wise, falls in love with a poor, beautiful country girl, and they get married, and that sometime after that, her love for him grows cold, and doesn't let them in at night, and then she has to go looking for him. Sorry that she locked them out and put them in the doghouse. And then they reunite, and then they sing back and forth their love for one another. That's a very brief summary of it. Now, there are lessons for married couples here, and several books have been written based upon the Song of Solomon, giving advice to husbands and to wives, such as, tell your wife how, much, how beautiful she looks, and you love her, and And vice versa, oh, how strong you are, just like in the Song of Solomon, and that some preachers preach on that. But others say, yes, that is true, but obviously this is also a type of Christ in his church. Even the rabbis saw that with Jehovah and Israel. For example, this echoes Ephesians 5 and several other places, Christ and he's the perfect husband. Now notice I said, In the story of the Song of Songs, the wife is the one who gets cold, not the husband. And in the spiritual realm, our love grows cold, and we lock Christ out. Christ's love never grows cold. We sometimes lose our first love. Revelation 2, 4 says, you have lost your first love. And like Solomon, we backslide. But Christ never Backslides, he never loses his first love for us. Couples need to keep that first love going. Now, it's a type, not an allegory. An allegory is like saying, this isn't historical. It's all just figures of speech. No, the Bible uh, records true events, true people, and some of which are types of Christ or the church or other spiritual realities The temple was a type of Christ, things like that. But an allegory says, no, these weren't real people and things. It's all myths and allegories, no. Song of Songs is also more than just a parable. It has this messianic tone to it. It's like a messianic prophecy in parable form. Song of Solomon, beautiful. I wonder if we'll sing it in heaven. As a duet with our heavenly husband. Anybody ever heard of the great Robert Murray McShane? Has anybody ever read that book, there are "Memoirs and Remains"? Please do. It's five hundred pages. Every page is as sweet as honey. At his ordination, he met, he preached on this, and here's what he said. There is no book of the Bible which affords a better test of the depths of a man's Christianity than the Song of Solomon. That's very interesting. And he was in his early 20s. He said, how he looks at the Song of Solomon is a true test of that man's religion. That's very profound. Well, we ended a little early tonight. Does anybody have any questions or anything to share on Solomon's three books? Vic, did you ever preach through any of these three? Oh, yes, all the way through. Ecclesiastes, especially. I uh, like Ecclesiastes. I think it's very powerful in an evangelical sense. Throw it to some of those skeptics that replied to your blog and say, "Why don't you get out your Bible and read Ecclesiastes?" I dare, because there is a philosopher that had some interesting. See what they would do. Trick their curiosity. It worked with me. Okay. Yeah, I Yeah. Anyone else? Questions? Memoirs and remains of Robert Murray McShane. Remains doesn't mean you know what's been buried. It means the things that he he died at twenty nine. Very godly Scottish preacher about two hundred years ago. Highly recommended. Anybody else? I don't know. My general feeling is Putin, having been in the KGB, has never changed from being an old-fashioned communist. And after the dissolution of the Soviet Union three years ago, he wants to rebuild it by bringing back under Russian domination former republics, remember, Union of Soviet Republics. And so he wants to get Ukraine and some of the others... Unfortunately for him, some of those others are part of NATO and he can't go after them without massive retaliation. I think he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union empire again, starting with Ukraine. Of course, the Palestinians would say the Jews grabbed it from them in 1948. No, they they had inherited it. Yeah, blatant aggression. In fact, uh, I forgot who it was, some commentator, one of those talking head sages said, Putin is doing very much like Hitler. Remember Hitler, the Anschluss in Austria in 1938 and then he took Czechoslovakia thirty-nine, 1939. And um, Austria and Czechoslovakia, Austria and it is like two countries were like this over Czechoslovakia and Hitler had said, I'm a, I don't have any more claims. And then he went and met with his chief of staff and just simply did this grab Czechoslovakia and that's what happened and that they tried to make peace and then he went to Poland and World War II began so I think that this is what he's what Putin is going to do grab some more and he's going to keep grabbing until finally someone says no more in fact you're going to have to give up what you've already taken remember Russians are the best chess players in the world and uh, there's always more to it than we realize now Uh, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son, I'm not even the grandson of a prophet. I am a great grandson of a primitive Baptist preacher. But my prophecy, uninspired, would be Within one year, some self-appointed prophecy expert is going to say, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. The Russian bear going against the reunited Roman Empire that's in European Union. Hallelujah, Jesus is coming soon. Someone's going to write a book saying Putin is the Antichrist. How do I know? In the early 1980s, when um, Saddam Hussein in Iraq went into Kuwait, there were people saying, Iraq is Babylon come to life. In fact, someone wrote a book called The Rise of Babylon and a friend of mine, a Sovereign Grace Baptist, wrote a book saying Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist and this has all been predicted. Someone's going to write a book saying Putin is the Antichrist and this is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. <laughs> no. No. Anybody got anything else to share? We kind of got off on a tangent. What else do we have? That would be interesting. <laughs> interesting man. I have a I have an opinion about uh, Putin. Hmm. Putin is far more dangerous. I I was a, a Russian linguist intelligence specialist back. Tried.